0: Down to Earth with Amundi, working today for all our tomorrows.
1: This is News Talk.
2: This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Carr Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, can we keep the lights on in a future without fossil fuels? Dr. David Conley has a plan for how to generate all of our electricity through renewable resources. Kate Ruddock and J.P. Prendrias explain how communities and individuals can be part of this transition. Minister Eamon Ryan presents his clean energy vision for Ireland. And our country's best-known cook, Darina Allen, is my guest this week for My Green Life, where she'll give us her recipe for a life of sustainability. It's time to head down to Earth. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But now it's time to figure out how we continue to power Ireland while meeting our climate change commitments and how that transition will change our country. Well, I've been fangirling over my first guest since he conducted a study entitled Green Plan Ireland during his time as a professor in Aris University in Denmark. Dr. David Conley is currently the CEO of Wind Energy Ireland and chairperson of the Irish District Energy Association. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me, Cara. You know I'm a big fan of your 2014 research, Green Plan Ireland, which described how Ireland could have 100% renewable energy without increasing the cost of energy and also creating 100,000 additional jobs. Now, some listeners might think this sounds too good to be true. So tell us how it's possible. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I suppose the one thing to start with, Cara, is we live in a part of the world where we're extremely fortunate because we have far more renewable energy than we'll, we'll ever need. And just to give people a flavour of that, we, we currently have about 4,000 megawatts of wind energy in Ireland, and that provides around 40%, just short of 40% of our electricity needs, but the potential for wind energy in Ireland is probably 15 to 20 times that. So that'll give you a sense of just how much we have, and I suppose it's because we have such an Enormous resource to start with is why 100% renewable energy is very, very possible for us. Um, The second thing I'd say to people is I think everyone knows wind energy is clean. I think what people mightn't be aware of is clean energy is now very cost effective wind energy. It was only actually yesterday that the results of a wind energy auction in Spain was actually a renewable energy auction for wind and solar. And the average price of renewables from that auction just yesterday was about half of what we pay for electricity in in our own market here in Ireland. So if we could replicate that success story of Spain, we'd be getting this vast renewable resource that we have for a price that's even less than what fossil fuels pay today.
2: You're saying we're paying too much for our wind energy.
3: I think it's a it's been a transition. So I think we 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 paid a lot at the start because the technology was very new, but the technology has improved so, so much in the last fifteen years. i like the way I'd compare it to is it's like having a Nokia 3310 15 years ago versus an iPhone today. You know, the, the, that's kind of the transition that wind energy has been on in the in the energy world. So the, the price of wind and solar has just dropped so fast. And we, we only had our, let's say, first auctions this last year, whereas other countries like Spain have had them for a number of years now. So I think as we get those coming through, we should hopefully see results similar to, to other European countries, which I should say have less resource than we have. So we should even be be better than they are.
2: Well, you've mentioned that the cost is coming way down in terms of renewable energy technology, but a lot has changed in the seven years since you published Green Plan Ireland. We have new energy and climate change commitments, and there's been a lot of technological advancements so how far are we now on on achieving this fossil fuel free journey in our power system in ireland
3: so in the power system we're doing extraordinary well i think just so your listeners know we are number one in the world for onshore wind and i just want people really let that sink in number one in the world like there is nobody else in the entire planet using as much onshore wind in their power system as, as Ireland is today we we haven't exploited our offshore wind resource unfortunately at scale yet but i think that's going to change very very soon we expect the first offshore wind farms to come online by the middle of the decades so this is a let's say another let's say, notch on our belts in getting more renewables onto the Irish power system. But but look, to be at 40% renewable electricity is a, is a really good start. We want to get to at least 70% by, by 2030. I think we could even push that a bit further, maybe further towards even 80%. But by the time we get that far, effectively, our power system will be almost fully decarbonized. So by the time we get to 2030, we would expect that we'll have around 4 million tonnes of CO2 in the power sector, whereas if we didn't have any wind energy, that would have been closer to 16, 17 million tonnes. So we'll have got rid of the vast, vast majority out of the power sector. But then the, the next big challenge is you know, the energy we use is not just electricity, we use heat and transport as well. So we need to figure out how to replicate that success in the electricity sector into those other heat and transport sectors.
2: So how would you change your analysis if you were creating a new green plan Ireland today?
3: Very, very little, would you believe Cara? So I actually had a look, and if you, if you just give me 30 seconds, I list, for me back in 2014, the, the six key technologies I had were wind and solar power, district heating, heat pumps, zero carbon system services, electric vehicles and electrofuels, which a lot of people call hydrogen. And the only one I would add, if I had to do it all over again, is a new technology from Sweden and Germany called electric roads. So I, I think the solutions in that six year period are all very similar. And I would argue that for the next two decades, I think we're going to have the same palette of solutions that we're still talking about. What we need to do is deliver them.
2: You mentioned electric roads there. Can you explain what you what you mean by that?
3: I can. So if you think about electric vehicles, not just electric cars, but electric trucks, the big challenge for everybody is getting batteries that are both cost effective and let's say can go long distances. And what the electric road technology that they have in Sweden and Germany at the moment is doing is providing recharge infrastructure on the road itself. So as you drive along, your battery charges and fills up. So now instead of needing a 500 kilometer range battery to travel across Ireland, you may only need a 100-kilometre range battery because once you got onto the motorway, you can charge the battery on the road itself. And when I've done some analysis on this and seen some of the results coming out of Sweden and, and Germany, what you start to notice is the amount of money you save on having much smaller batteries in cars and trucks is actually quite substantial and pays for the charging infrastructure along the road, which I think would accelerate how fast we can electrify our road transport, not just cars, but trucks and buses also.
2: Yeah, as an early adopter of electric vehicles, I would absolutely love electric roads. Um, (laughs) You mentioned also district heating, and I notice you're the chairperson of the Irish District Energy Association founded in 2017. But district energy is something I think we're not all that familiar with in Ireland. So can you explain how that works and how it could be implemented here?
3: It's, it's a fascinating example of how, like I was saying to you earlier, a lot of the time the technology exists, but we're just not aware of how to implement it. So district heating has been around for a hundred years. It has been used in loads of other EU countries in places like Sweden, Denmark, it provides 50, 60% of all the heat in those countries. So really, really well-established technology, but in Ireland, we just never were familiar with it. We, we don't have it. We, we don't have the, let's say, the skills here to do it. We haven't the knowledge base to understand how to apply it. So we, we have a lot of learning to do to catch up with what they've done. And if I was to give your listeners one nugget, we currently waste more heat into the River Liffey than we need to heat all of Dublin. So there's a load of activity going on, industrial and power station activity that wastes heat. And instead of using it in our buildings to heat our homes, we just throw it away. And instead in Scandinavia, they don't throw that heat away. They actually put it into a pipe network of hot water and use it to heat their buildings. And what's so fantastic about that is you're effectively taking something that's a waste product and you're just throwing it away for free at the moment. And you could literally replace all of the natural gas we use to heat our homes in Dublin with that waste heat we just currently give away for free to the fish.
2: And is it really sensible to think that we're going to retrofit all of Dublin to be able to use this heat?
3: So the wonderful thing is that the the radiators in your home can can use the same, you can use all those the same as you would in a district heating system as you can in a natural gas boiler or an oil boiler for that matter. So what you what, what it would look like is instead of having a boiler on your wall, you would have a unit that looks very, very similar, but it would take the uh, heat from hot water pipes in the street and transfer them into your home rather than take gas from a pipe and burn it. So it, it, it's a very similar look and feel to it, but what's happening behind the box is, is very different.
2: David, on January 6th of this year, it was reported that there was a squeeze on electricity supplies and it brought Ireland close to power cuts. So so if we're already struggling on a cold day like that with high demand and we've got future plans for a bigger population and more data centres in the country, is a fossil fuel-free power system in 14 years really achievable? And how would it cope with those days when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining?
3: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So I suppose just very quickly, the, the amber alert that we got was due to a very high demand due to, to cold weather and our and, and, and the backup, let's say, not being available at the same time because three power stations were unavailable. So when we hit the peak, the the backup that we depend on to be ready and available, if anything goes wrong, wasn't available. So the Amber Alert was all signaling that if anything goes wrong now, we effectively don't have the backup that we usually have in place readily available to step in if, if anything goes wrong. So that was why it was amber. So we didn't actually have a problem, but the amber signal that there was a problem. But the, the, the solution to that, in my view, is not, it's not a wind or solar or renewable energy issue. That's just making sure that when the wind and solar is not available, that we have enough backup to, to, to turn on. So these power stations will have to be there for the days that demand is high and the wind or solar isn't there. But I think just so your listeners are clear, you know what's happening right now is the need to have this backup is becoming less and less and less. So 20 years ago, we had no wind power. 20 years later, so today, we have 40% almost wind power. So that means instead of the power stations being needed 100% of the year, they're now only needed 60% of the year. And as I said, in 2030, we want to get to at least 70% renewables. So then we'll only need the power stations to be ready and available 30% of the time. And who knows, maybe we can go a bit further and do it even less.
2: You've painted a really big picture of how we can get all our electricity and heating requirements from renewable resources. But all of that, as you've said, takes a lot of time and government leadership. So what can we as individuals do in the meantime to start making this energy? transition?
3: I think, that, surprisingly or not, the one biggest thing you can do is every time you speak to a politician, or even, even better, if you could go to the effort of contacting a politician and say you really support climate action, you really support wind energy, solar energy, heat pumps, electric vehicles, that actually has a very strong impact. We've seen from the children marching in the streets how much of an impact that has had on our political system, really shaping its purpose to try and tackle climate change and everyone can do that and it only takes a small number of people in every constituency to tell their local electorate politician that they want something to happen and that really does have a strong influence on on the laws we have and the regulations we have changing and I think other than let's say complain to your TD or push your TD I think what you can do yourself is if you have an oil boiler buy a heat pump if you have a car in your driveway, buy an electric vehicle, they are two hugely beneficial things you can do to reduce your own personal carbon footprint. And I would argue actually have a better experience. I think if you have an oil boiler and you go to a heat pump, I think your indoor climate, your temperature will be better. I think if you go from a car, diesel or petrol car to an electric vehicle, I think you'll enjoy the driving experience more. So I think not only are you helping the planet, I think you'll enjoy it more yeah, as well.
2: I'd agree with that too. Dr. David Conley, CEO of Wind Energy Ireland, thank you for joining us here on Down to Earth. Up next, we'll find out how one Irish initiative is breaking ground for communities and individuals to help create Ireland's renewable future.
1: Down to Earth with Amundi.
4: Working today for all our tomorrows.
1: This is Talk.
2: You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Carr-Augustin-Borg. It's clear that Ireland's energy system is a long way from being fossil fuel free, and many people are already struggling to pay high energy bills in cold homes. But my next guests are founders of Ireland's first community-owned electricity supplier. And it's developed to ensure that the benefits of generating renewable power are shared by the people and communities of Ireland. Kate Ruddock is the Deputy Director of Friends of the Earth Ireland and J.P. Prendergast is the Chairperson of the Clare Morris and Western District Energy Cooperative. J.P., could you start by explaining what community power is and how the Clare Morris and Western District Energy Cooperative feed into that?
1: Our idea was to set up a a community-owned energy uh, generation project, which would allow us not only to take control of our generation, but also to be able to re- disperse that throughout the community um, in a means which we had some control on it and at least we could reinvest any profits from that into the community itself. The community power itself was was formation actually after Temple Dairy uh, Energy, which was uh, John Fogte the guys down there actually they uh, they, they built their first wind farm. <clears throat> They're about 12 years at the project and and part of that was they looked into work outside their own community and, and what we call to uh, generated project communities, of communities, basically. So we started to work with Temple Dairy, and then our Islands came in, Limerick came in, Temporary came in, and what it does is it allows all the communities to start generating their own power and also facilitate the ability to um, redisperse or resell that power back to its own community. And, and also, ironically, to redisperse back into, say, urban from, from rural generation. So you find a situation, and uh, we will have a situation with community power, where you know the cities and, the, and, and urban Ireland would be able to um, benefit from this rural project, rural generation, um, and a mechanism whereby it gives control to the communities themselves, but also puts them on the ladder for energy generation. So the project and the, the group is, Really, uh, a, I suppose, a pool of communities which is growing all the time, looking for generation and the ability to sell the power back to their own their own residents and their own members.
2: For people who aren't familiar with Temple Dairy, can you just explain what Temple Dairy is?
1: So Temple Dairy was a group that was formed um, over, I believe, 12 years ago Beyond beyond, whereby they looked at forming, uh, building three wind turbines um, on their site in Temple Dairy itself. Um, there's a, a kind of a community of about 28, 30 people that are involved initially in the project, Ironically, when they did their project, they would have been competing on the open market for wind generation with the large wind uh, generators, um, but they would have gone through a 12-year period of trying to get their project off the ground. Their success really has led to the generation of community power. So they have now three turbines, which is now producing power um, in Derry, feeding back into the grid and from that they have a a revenue generation which they've now uh, looked at participating and in involving other communities in this so they're probably leading by example um facilitating people like the likes of Camaris or Dunmore, or for example Tata house or our islands but certainly from the point of view of being able to enable the the other communities to start to get on that that ladder and for which then we we as other communities need to follow by example and, and start doing the same thing and bring other communities on board so it's a uh, tic tac uh, an opportunity um, which leads from the success of, of the first wind farm, the first community-led project, which was Temple Dairy.
2: Kate, Friends of the Earth has run their own community-owned energy project by putting on uh, solar panels on five schools in Ireland, the Solar Schools Project. Uh, how difficult is it for schools right now to go about installing solar panels and generating their own electricity?
4: At
0: uh, Friends of the Earth, we... Um we are big fans of renewable energy and particularly of communities and people being involved in renewable energy generation. So um, with the support of some very generous um, donors, we decided to put solar panels, to support schools to put solar panels on their roofs. And um, we have five solar schools at the moment who have solar installed on the roofs, generating lots of power and um, this year we'll be doing eight eight more. There are a lot of challenges for schools to do it. Uh, the first thing is, is that schools have to get planning permission, even if they wanted just one solar panel. So planning permission is kind of a big deal. It costs about three grand to get it, so that's one investment up front that you have to get over. Um, there aren't any grants available for schools at all from, from the state Um we did try, uh, but there aren't any. So it's it's not that welcome, I suppose. Um, and then the final thing is, is that uh, <laughs> our schools, we put we put the solar panels on the schools around about this time last year, um, and they've been generating power and they they would, in normal circumstances, they would use that power during the day, Monday to Friday. Um, and in normal circumstances, they wouldn't be using it on the weekends and uh, throughout the holidays. But of course, this year, they haven't really been using it at all because they haven't been in school. So the power that's being generated from their rooftop is essentially being wasted, the majority of it at the moment, because there is no mechanism in Ireland for them to uh, sell that into the grid.
2: This is crazy. I mean, I, I know that I could put up to seven panels on my house and get a grant for it with no planning permission. And you're saying for a school to even put one panel up, they have to go through a very costly planning permission Action. I mean, we're, we're trying to educate kids to be engaged in climate action and, and we won't even let them put solar panels up. How, is this why we're not having a rooftop revolution in Ireland?
0: It is. It's one of the main, main barriers that we're seeing happening across Ireland. And I, I really think so. It's it's not just schools. It's actually schools, community buildings and public buildings. So they're all they don't benefit from the same exemptions that houses have from not having to apply for planning permission. when um, one, one school say, in Colmcills in, in Dublin, they actually had to apply for planning permission twice because the first roof that they were planning on putting the panels on when the contractors got up on top of it they realized it wasn't going to be suitable so they had to change to a different roof and that required another delay and another planning application so it's just it's a, it's a lot of barriers in the way of communities and and schools who who are full of very enthusiastic young people who are really trying to embrace climate action we've seen that by uh, students taking to the street and strike but all the schools that we've been working with they're way ahead of most politicians in Ireland in terms of their ambition for climate action um, and there are a lot of barriers in their way now there are there is talk of changing that there was a target set that they would take away that um ridiculous planning restriction by the end of 2015 we're now or sorry 2019 and um, we're now in 2021 of course and um, they're talking about putting an interim solution in place in march but i ugh. It's very disappointing to see the delay.
2: JP, as as one of the people who's in a community who's trying to set up an energy project, how would you recommend that another community maybe go about doing this themselves if they were interested?
1: Basically, under SCAI, there is a scheme called um, Sustainable Energy Communities, SECs. Um, that was set up about maybe four to five years ago or by it looked at facilitating communities and understanding the transition so they would understand their a heat map well, sorry an energy map of their locality would be um, a, a report that generates which was basically much energy has been used in, in their town or village and from there they generate a project from that the biggest thing here Cara is understanding it, it's not the difficulties of doing it it's the understanding of how to do it and what's been set up I suppose to the SECs is probably a mechanism by which you can share that information. In other words, if I think I've got a, a solar project that, that I can you know, facilitate within my town or village, but what's involved in doing that? So what's a connection to the grid, for example? What's required in a planning permission? How does the community um, proceed in getting that planning permission? So in, in, in this case, the SEC is probably the first um, um, point of contact. But ironically, what we've done in Community Power is we've tried to go that step further whereby subject to our and our success in getting our first two sites through what we call res1 which was your renewable energy uh, sports scheme um and where Camarison Morrison done more our first two projects were successful we learned how to do it uh, we learned how to put the planning in we learned how to submit under the um government um auction and so what's happened is a lot of communities are now approaching community power asking the question of how to do this it is costly Within reason, whereby we would have had to go into the credit union and raise some money to try and pay for some of the bills initially. But I think that barrier is now starting to to, to be pulled down a small bit where supports are being put in place for communities to get those projects across the line.
2: Well, you've both given a clear call to action for communities in Ireland who may want to develop their own energy project. And it's wonderful that community power exists to support them in doing that. But I live in an urban area without that sense of community. So, Kate, what can someone like me do to help support this community focused energy transition? Well,
0: um, community power are a supplier. So at the moment, you could switch your electricity so that you're buying um, renewable electricity from community power. And that would be supporting the likes of Clare Morris and other communities around Ireland who are trying to develop their generation projects. You could also, hopefully down the line, not too far down the line... um, there will be opportunities for people to buy in so citizens to buy into solar farms around Ireland or wind farms indeed um so you could make an investment into one into one of those projects um and then you see a little bit of a return and you'd be supporting um, the generation to get off the ground.
2: Well, that that sounds like I'll, what I'll be doing when I go home today. It's communitypower.ie. <laughs> Many thanks to Kate Ruddock and J.P. Prendergast for establishing and explaining the work of Ireland's first community-owned electricity supplier. Just a reminder that in a few minutes, we'll be talking to Ireland's most famous cook, Darina Allen, about her green life, where she'll give us her recipe for a life of sustainability. But before that, my next guest has been referred to as the only politician in Ireland with any kind of vision for the country. Eamon Ryan is the Minister for Environment, Climate and Communications and Transport. That's an enormous brief, Eamon, particularly since the COVID pandemic. It is,
5: but it it makes sense. It, It does actually connect because there are three technological revolutions happening at the moment in digital technology, in clean energy and in transport. And they all connect together. The digital revolution is actually critical to the clean energy revolution. You know, you need need good information sharing to be able to make it work. And similarly, the clean energy revolution is going to be central to the transport revolution as we electrify everything. And so the departments I have, the two departments, kind of they cross over. And I suppose at the center of it is climate in the sense that that drives everything now, and it drives what we need to do with our communication systems, what we do with our land, what we do with transport, what we do with energy. So the way I see it, it actually makes sense.
2: You don't feel like you're managing too many crises at once, including the, the issues with COVID and transport.
5: In a way, I think it teaches us something, though, about how we could actually tackle the climate crisis. I think it teaches us that we can do radical change. We can, through collective action, show real effect in that. And also, it is changing just the sense of connection to local area, and changing the way we move around. So I think I think all the work we're doing on COVID, we have to do it. It's it's mission critical at the moment for the country. But it also maybe gives us a certain um, learning that we could apply to the really big crisis we're facing, which is the ecological one.
2: I want to go back actually to the time you were you were minister last time, way back when as minister for communications, energy and natural resources between 2007 and 2011. And at the time, installed wind capacity in Ireland actually doubled to about 17% of Ireland's electricity. And now a decade later, we've more than doubled that proportion yet again with wind now accounting for about 40% of our electricity mix. Would you say our journey has been a success so far with respect to the decarbonization of our power system?
5: In electricity, yes, I think we are probably, if you look at it, and on, on any objective basis, we're probably one of the leading countries in the integration of renewable power to an electricity system. And because we're kind of an island, it's it's because it's an all-island approach, which is part of the success. We can kind of show that you can actually run electricity systems with very large amounts of renewable power and that's where the world is going so we're we're probably five or ten years ahead of most countries in that change and we've learned a lot from it and and yes it has been success where we haven't had success is in heating in, in how we heat for buildings and also water and industry and so on and also in transport and in land use and in electricity there's a kind of clear path now towards, in my mind, towards 100% renewable system, and in the next decade to get into 70% towards that goal. And it will very much now involve the ramping up of offshore wind and solar power and interconnection so we can balance it with other neighboring countries. So I think the path in electricity, I mean, it's still a huge challenge, but it's fairly clear what we have to do. There's real political support for what we're doing. There is, until you get down to some difficult, you know, kind of knotty issues. But by and large, there's agreement uh, on those sort of targets and and, and the broad, you know, the development of offshore wind and so on. I think there is broad political agreement. So you can see a way forward. It's in energy efficiency, in in heat and in transport and in uh, our use of our land that we're going to have the real challenge. And also real opportunity, because in a sense, on the electricity side, we're starting to benefit from what we've done like we create investment we get jobs other jobs are created because other industries come in and say we want to use that clean power so uh, we want the same now in agriculture and in transport and in heat, that we start to get some of the gains that will come from this transition.
2: In in 2009, you announced major government funding investment in marine energy research projects, and there's now at least five ocean energy research labs around the country as a result. But given that we now have about 14 years left to fully move to a renewable power system, it seems to me like marine energy technology is not developed enough to address this challenge. So what do you see the role of marine energy as in Ireland going forward, or is there none?
5: Well, two or three give examples. It was always a long, a big bet on the likes of tidal power and wave power, which was which, which was what a lot of the research investment was put into. But we always knew that it was a twenty or thirty-year investment, and it was, it was in a sense, it was really um, shooting for the moon, as it were, because it's a harsh environment, and particularly generating electricity in a in a in a marine environment is is not easy. But by doing that, I think we gained a huge amount. We gained real research and skills and the sort of knowledge we have around that environment and how you work in it will apply just as equally to the development of offshore floating wind, as it will for wave or tidal energy. So the investments in the likes you know, near Belmullet or in May and Clare for kind of offshore grid connections into whether that it's a wave, a wave farm or, or a tidal energy platform or a floating offshore wind, it's the same learning. So we have learned a lot and we will deploy that, particularly in the development of floating offshore wind in my mind, with tidal and, and wave power may still come. It may come later. Uh, it has always has the, the benefit or the, the attraction is that there's real density in wave energy and in tidal power, but it, the engineering is really challenging. The engineering on, on offshore wind is also challenging, but it's, it's here, it works, it's commercial we can scale it up. We can develop, we're aiming to get to about 35 gigawatts of offshore wind. And just to put that in context, that's probably seven times the amount of electricity the country is using at the moment. So we will have an excess capacity. We will have an export capability. We will be, be, to, be able to develop other industries that come here. One other investment, I when I think back in that time, because we, in a very difficult time, like we were, we were really in financial, financial crisis. But one of the things we kept going was Infomar project it was called and it was mapping the marine um, area around the coast uh, mapping the seabed And, and it hadn't been done since the royal navy had done it about 150 years previously who had done a very good job but it needed to be updated and the investment we made in that and it's slow but certain over the last 10 12 years Now it gives us a really good mapping of our coastline and of the seabed. It's just an example when you think long term and invest in research and invest in understanding the environment, you end up getting maybe kind of benefits that you maybe didn't even expect. One of the things I'm saying to the Geological Survey of Ireland now is can we use that mapping to look? This is very inshore can look at where would we seed kelp beds? Where might might we look at how we might store carbon in the ocean in sort of innovative ways like that, where you improve the marine environment, where you use your really detailed knowledge of, of the seabed and, and, and what the the structure of the rock base and so on is.
2: You've said that solar and offshore wind will be the dominant sources of energy going forward. And, and we spoke earlier to Kate Ruddock and J.P. Prendergast about the Community Power uh, Initiative and the importance of communities being involved in our energy transition. But the current renewable energy support scheme and the microgeneration support scheme that your department is proposing is actually quite restrictive. So you know buildings have to have a minimum energy rating, which means it's only really available to those who already have the money to do substantial retrofit. And that means, you know, maybe some schools or some farmers' barns are, are then precluded from availing of this microgeneration scheme. So is this not holding, holding our rooftop revolution back and really restricting solar panels to, to the wealthier demographics of society?
5: Well, first, it's critical that we do get community power and, and use the potential of this alternative, particularly solar, to be a distributed power and, and to be So you're using power locally. You don't have to provide so much grid. It empowers the local community and the local householder. So what we're doing at the moment is very much aimed, I suppose, more at the local, residential, small business. There will be further measures or need to be further measures on public buildings for farmers and larger business. That's only one part of the phase. So a lot of those sort of categories you mentioned, yeah, we'll have to do as well. But I, I would defend and come back and say that putting a requirement for energy efficiency in buildings is actually critical because we need that too. Like the first lesson in any, you know, some of the metaphor that they always use, which is always, always a good one, if you to fill a bath, the first thing you do is you put the plug in. And at the same time that we're putting in these new measures to support micro-generation, we're putting in huge investment. I mean, almost a quarter of a million in the last budget. And, and most of it targeted towards social housing, lower income housing, to improve the energy efficiency. And that is important because, okay, we'll have both solar PV on the rooftop, but also in my mind, solar water heating. But also we want to switch, like we have to stop burning all fossil fuels. So what's our heating system we're going to use? It'd be towards the use of of heat pumps powered by electricity and using the efficiency that you can gain from them to, to heat a home. But they really only work when you have an energy efficiency home. So where we're pushing towards is this kind of house, every house with a kind of a solar panel, solar water heating, heat pump and energy efficiency. And if you take out the energy efficiency bit, it can be very wasteful. It can be very expensive. It can be not as good for health. They're not good, warm, cosy homes. And I would argue we have to tackle fuel poverty. Absolutely, social justice, just transition has to be central to this. Well, then I think the first thing is to really invest in those poor houses, particularly those targeted with those in lower income groups, so that they are efficient, that they're healthy, that they're warm, that they're easy and cheap to run, and also have solar panels on the roof.
2: Just a reminder, you're listening to Down to Earth, and my guest is Minister Eamon Ryan. Eamon, you you mentioned that your department's committed to over 220 million euro in funding this year for deep energy retrofit, and that's an 80% increase on 2020, which is impressive. But there seems to be a massive obstacle in getting that work done, particularly with respect to the the skilled labor to install heat pumps and insulation at the scale we need. How do you intend to solve that bottleneck?
5: You're right. There is a real and and then current COVID arrangements don't help. So, so we don't have construction at the moment. And the, this was the first winter when we were really planning to work right the way through the winter. Like historically, that kind of en- energy retrofit work was terribly stop-start in that, you know, you'd wait for the grant to come out every year, then you'd apply and then you'd do it the next summer and then the scheme would stop again and, and the builders would stand down. And instead, what we wanted, or what we started to do, COVID has interrupted it somewhat, but was to do This is guaranteed funding. This is going to go all year round and and multi-annual so that the builders could know they could take people on, that there'll be work there right through the year and next year and the year after. But you're right, the the critical shortage has been, well, it was a a year ago, getting the workers, skilled workers to do it. And we need about 30,000 skilled workers to do the scale of the kind of work we have in mind. But we've started, there are, uh, I think Simon Harris, uh, who's Minister for Third Level Education and Apprenticeships, has gone full with further budget funding for creating the very apprenticeships we need. This is going to be the, and there skilled craft jobs in plastering, carpentry, energy systems, uh, uh, electricians. It, it's one of the reasons I think the likes of Patricia King from the Irish Congress of Trade Unions is such a champion of this. It is as... Joe Biden has just said in terms of these are good, well-paid union jobs, which uh, create this green just transition. So we are going at that full tilt. One of the other measures we're doing is to work with the Strategic Banking Corporation of Ireland to set up new loan mechanisms that will really bring the cost of the loans down. And that de-risks the loan and makes it easier for other lenders to come in at really low interest rates and makes it then very easy for the household to say, well, I have savings of 1,200 euros a year, let's say, and my interest bill will be 800 euros. Therefore, I'm going to have a warmer, better, more comfortable, healthier home. And I can cover the cost by getting this low finance, low interest finance. So if we get that element right, if we get the apprenticeships in place, which we are, I think it's going to take off.
2: Just quickly, if someone wants to make a career change into home energy retrofit, where do they go to to reskill and find employment?
5: The Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland have the full kind of re- remit to manage all this, the natural retrofit scheme, I mean, we've seen a significant increase in their resources to, to be able to manage that, so I think they're the best first place to to, to look at everything in terms of how this uh, transformation works and, uh, and where the skills uh, uh, our, our skills training and other uh, resources are available.
2: Well, it's great to hear there's going to be new kinds of jobs in this energy transition. Thanks to Minister Eamon Ryan for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth. Stay tuned as coming up next, Doreena Allen will be telling me about her green life. Down to Earth with Amundi, working
1: today for all our tomorrows. This is News Talk.
2: Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, Ireland's best-known cook, Darina Allen, joins us on Down to Earth. Welcome, Darina. Thank you. I've, it's an honor It's an honor to have you. I've actually taken a few of your cooking courses at Ballymaloo Cookery School and you were the first to introduce me to the idea of foraging for food. You've been a, a champion on issues like organic food and growing your own food. But I want to start actually with, with your childhood just a few decades ago. You grew up in County Leash as the oldest of nine children. So how engaged in environmental issues were you in those early days?
4: well you know i don't think uh, basically the word environment was ever really used in our house but it was just in a funny way when i think about that i realized that um in many ways just the way mommy lived her life and and uh and the way we lived our lives really was in many ways very connected to working with nature and looking after the environment in lots of different ways even though it wasn't really spoken about so You know, little things like, for example, in our house, the rainwater was collected off the roof. And that's what went through the loos and for baths and all of that sort of thing. And also, um, we grew, of course, we we were very fortunate. We had a kitchen garden. We grew a lot of our own vegetables and things. Mummy had hens and reared uh, chickens for the house and all of that as well. And then there was also you know, I'm 70 something now. uh, And so in my childhood, and uh, I wish it was exactly the same now. um, there was there was no question of wasting anything, really, particularly not wasting food. So uh, any sort of leftovers mummy would make into something delicious for the next day, you just didn't waste it just simply wasn't an option, you get a clip in the ear if you left anything on your plate, you know. So that was all. And in a w- many ways, when I also when I think about it, it was just about good housekeeping um, in a way of not wasting anything. The cinders, for example, from the fire would be put out into the garden. The scraps from the house were fed to the hens and came back as eggs a few days later. Everything was kind of interconnected. In many ways, we were sort of self-sufficient. But this was, uh, as I said, it was just a way of living, a way of of being, rather than anything that we didn't really talk about the word environmental at that stage. environmental issues weren't so... Much the forest, of course, they are now.
2: I'm actually really surprised you had a segregated rainwater harvesting system because that's a really considered a really novel technology now in in modern houses. But do you think this was all um, kind of economically driven, or or was there something? Was it a value
4: based thing? Yeah, it was definitely economically driven, and it also made sense. You know, I mean, I'm delighted there's a revival of that actually because in a way it makes no sense to. Uh, you know, let the the rainwater be drain away, and then pay for uh, other water. You know, and it's it's perfectly good. It's a, and also all of this kind of just was you know seeped into our consciousness as children, and as a result, it's the way we still operate really to a great extent. So,
2: what kind of things now do you do in your everyday life to to benefit the environment in some way?
4: Some of the things are almost on I do almost unconsciously, but where I'm very fortunate, we live down here in the country in East Cork in the middle of a farm. We have a 100-acre organic farm and garden. So that is already, you know, we're very obviously connected to working with nature rather than against it. And we grow a a very wide range of vegetables and fruits and fresh herbs and all of that. And uh, we then actually, that's also not just for the school and for the family, but also we have a little farm shop here on the beside the cooking school on the farm where we can sell the organic produce and you know our our own milk we have a small dairy herd little jersey herd of eight or nine cows uh, and some pigs and chickens and all of that and basically we sell the food in that little farm shop to look to the local community and it's completely it's so important nowadays particularly during covid people just are so grateful uh, for that. And then I suppose the other thing you could say uh, is we've always, since i worked with my mother-in-law, Myrtle Allen, who's now deceased, but in Ballymaloo for many, many years, uh, she built up a whole, always had a policy of, she changed the menu every day. So basically she always had a policy of serving local food and buying from local producers. So we buy from, I suppose, about 150, 160 local uh, farmers, Uh, food producers, cheesemakers, fish smokers etc etc in the area and that actually makes makes a huge difference to the livelihood of people in the local area and it means they can produce food in a different kind of way when they know they have uh, a market uh, and they have a guaranteed price they'll be paid what they need to be paid to produce something of that quality. So that's really very much part of our ethos and our Philosophy it's not a holier than thou anything. It's just it's great for everybody because we get beautiful quality produce and the money is going back into our local community and we know exactly how each thing is produced. So we know that our money is going to help people to farm sustainably and uh, and people who are prepared to uh, look after the environment as they produce the foods. The other thing that I'm at the school, then a number of years ago, I banned tin foil. I've got a thing about tin foil, aluminium foil. So we banned that, so we don't use that at all. And we're doing our very best, as everybody is, I'm sure, now to cut down the use of plastic. Just to try to just have no single-use plastic. And it's really tough, even if you're really committed to it, because one has to say to one suppliers, so "Please don't deliver anything in plastic to me." You know, try to put it into a a recycled cardboard box or a or a timber box if the you know with the fruit when the fruit comes in it. And also, when one does that, you're reminding other people as well to just be a little bit more aware of that. And then there's another little thing. One of the things that might amuse you is that with things like, for example. Or citrus peels, orange or lemon peels or whatever, we of course make some candied peel, but there's a limit to how much candied peel you can use uh, or you want to use. The other ones that are left over, uh, we just dry them out, uh, in, in my case in the bottom oven of my ancient aga. And then they dry out and they make the most brilliant fire lighters. And then it makes sense because you don't, for anybody actually to do that, it's fun apart from anything else. But you don't have to pay the council to take away the, you know, it's not another thing to put into your bin going to the council. And of course, the other, I think I mentioned earlier about having hens. Oh my goodness. I really (laughs) encourage people uh, to think about having hens. Uh, Even if you're living in an urban area, if you have a little bit of grass, you know, maybe a little chicken coop and you might have three or four hens in it and the scraps then from your cooking can go to the hens and they'll come back as, they'll recycle them and they'll come back as eggs a few days later. And then you'll have the manure and you can put that onto your compost if you, and it's really, really a wonderful thing to make a little compost, even if it's very simple, put that back onto the soil uh, in your garden to make the soil more fertile. And then you can grow lots of lovely vegetables and everything uh, that are going to be really nutritious and, and delicious for the family. You've given <laughs> me tons of tips.
2: I'm definitely trying the orange <laughs> peels as firelighters when I get home. Many people are arguing that farmers markets could play a significant role in, in localizing our food system, and, and you've established a network of them in the Cork area. So what role do you see farmers markets playing in our new food system?
4: Oh, my goodness. Well, the farmers markets are... Uh, of all the things I've been involved with and I've been involved with a few over the years, slow food and all sorts of other things, I think honestly establishing the farmers markets here, in the first farmers market here in Ireland over 30 years ago, now actually, believe it or not, after I came back from, and saw the first one in San Francisco, I think is the thing that if I was to say it, feel most proud of, uh, because, but and actually that's made a difference to so many people's farmers and food producers' lives they're in a crucial and essential part of a food system for not only for the producers themselves who get the full price into their hand and the appreciation for what they're doing. This is not an insignificant thing when you're there on your stall uh, and the customer comes up to you and they say, oh my goodness, that was one, they were, that was a wonderful bit of broccoli I got last week or something. Because farmers very often don't get much in the way of credits in the general public because they produce their food, it goes into a lorry and goes out through the farm gate, and they never meet the person who eats it or, you know, uh, or enjoys it. So the, this is another element of the farmer's market, apart from the importance of getting the full price uh, into your hand, uh, which m- means the difference between survival and not for so many uh, farmers and food producers. Because remember, one of the biggest challenges uh, is the, the, the low price of food at the farm gate. At the moment, you know, it's very difficult one, this it really is. Everybody deserves and needs wholesome nourishing food. And so, but basically at the moment we are not paying the farmers enough or the producers enough in most cases to actually produce the nourishing wholesome food we say we need we want. And so this is a, a real dilemma and and um, you know, it's something that's going to, somehow Rather, other, we've got to get the, the. we've got to make um, consumers in general in their very busy lives, aware of this particular issue. Cause it's, it means we can't, you know, the, we totally depend of course on the food we eat. So to keep us alive and if we are not paying enough to produce nourishing, wholesome food, we're all losers. I think you're you're alluding to a lot of big problems we have with our intensified
2: agricultural system, both with respect to the price that farmers get and the impact on nature. So where do you think Ireland's food and agricultural policy should focus on in the future to address these challenges while still giving farmers uh, strong livelihoods?
4: In many ways, uh, farmers are caught caught very much in a catch-22 situation. Many of them feel uncomfortable about the uh, amount of pesticides and herbicides and things like that they have to put on the land to grow their crops or feel they have to. Many farmers, by the way, really, truly do not believe they can grow uh, organically, that they can grow without these uh, inputs. So in a way, what's needed is for our Irish government and for Chagish, that wonderful... A research station to actually pump lots and much 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 more money into research for this kind of farm these kind of farming systems many farmers now are beginning to embark on a journey of what they call regenerative farming where you're on a journey to um, to farm with less inputs and so on uh, so they need huge support um, basically to continue on that journey they need the advice, the research, and uh, of course subsidies to help them uh, over the transition period. Um, They also, there's a couple of sort of things that would be big game changers really. And uh, if if the government was to bring in the um, policy of the, that the polluter uh, should pay uh, or, or adopt the polluter pays principle. So those who create the pollution Should bear the costs of of cleaning it up. And those who farm sustainably, they should be rewarded for their contribution to global health and the environment. This is not actually, believe it or not, the case at the moment. And if farmers were paid not just for volume, as is the case at the moment, um, but mostly, but for nutrient density. Um, but depend, you know, food, the more nutrient-dense the food, the more they would be paid for it. For a number of years now, there's uh, several people have been working on developing a spectrometer. Um, and that's something that, you know, uh, would eventually you'd have a nap on your phone. When you go into your shop or supermarket, there might be two or three lots of carrots there. And you might put your spectrometer up to the carrots and one would have so much vitamins, minerals, trace elements set to the next one, perhaps a little less. And so on, and there might be a difference in price between them. And you could just, you decide, oh look, I want to buy those, or I'll buy those because they actually have more nutrients and they're more wholesome and nourishing for my family. So that wouldn't that be a, a game changer? Uh, the other thing that is a hugely important is to teach our kids how to cook. Uh, we need to reembed cooking, and indeed, for that matter, growing skills back into the school curriculums. At the moment, what are we like? We've let several generations out of our house, houses and out of our schools without giving them the basic skills to feed themselves. I mean, it's really, really crazy. And they would make, not only would they have the skills to feed themselves and nourish themselves well, which would have an impact, of course, on their health and on the health service and all of that. Uh, but also they would be different kinds of consumers. They would be looking for a different of food when they go shopping. So, you have yeah. given
2: us an absolute ton of food for thought on what we can do as individuals and nationally to be more environmentally conscious in our in our eating habits. My thanks to Jarena Allen, celebrity cook, author and slow food champion. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau. And don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcast at newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Next week, we're dressing up to find out if there's an ugly side to fast fashion. But until then, stay curious.